The theme today is Scripture. That is the way to know God. Amen? It's to dig into the Word. That's where He has revealed Himself. In the pages of the Bible. You know, as we, as we stood there and worshipped, as we let our hearts cry out to God, I was thinking, you know, that attitude, Lord, I want to know You. That passionate cry is really the distinguishing mark of true followers. Do you hear what I just said? A passionate cry to know God is the distinguishing mark of true followers. I mean, while you were seeing that, I trust your heart was not worried about the screen, that you weren't focused on a, a string that may have gone flat, or perhaps a... man. You were, you were praying to the Almighty One. God, I want to know You. And in that moment, watch this guys, watch this. You were ex- exhibiting to God probably the one factor that lets Him know more than anything else, You belong to Me. You see, people that want to know Him are, are captivated with Him, aren't we? Watch this guys. True followers aren't bored with God. Amen. Real disciples are just riveted on the Savior. We are consumed with this desire to know Him more. That's really describes that 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 whole uh, those paragraphs describe a single verse in Luke 19, and we get a real picture of of the people who were consumed with knowing Him. In Luke chapter 19, let me show you a phrase. Would, can I? Luke 19, verse 48. In fact, today we're going to spend all of our time on this one simple phrase. It's found in Luke 19, verse 48. I'll show it behind me in case you don't have a Bible with you. If you have your Bible, I want you to make sure you find Luke 19, 48. I want you to circle this entire phrase. This is an awesome phrase. And it describes the people in Luke 19 and how they wanted to know Him. Here's the phrase, Luke 19, 48. I'll show it behind me here. In fact, would you read this with me, whether from your Bible or from the screen here? Ready? It says this. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on His words. Isn't that awesome? That simple phrase was what you just sang. Lord, I want to know You. Man, Lord, I want to hang on every word You say. I want to be riveted and consumed and captivated by every breath, move. Lord, I want to hang on every word you say. Now, notice something in this text. The first phrase there is they could not find any way to do it. It refers to uh, much of the text here and how there were many people who were, who were trying to kill him. You see verse 47 there? They were trying to kill him. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, the leaders among the people... All the religious people were trying to kill him, but they couldn't do it. Why? Because the normal people, I like that phrase, the regular commoners were so captivated. They were hanging on his every word. And it was so powerful that not even the religious leaders, not even the political people could move against him to try to kill him because his followers were so riveted. Isn't that awesome? Don't ever underestimate the power of being consumed with the words of Christ. When His Word becomes our singular focus, 
And we're on the edge of impact. Amen? Now, let me take a minute and explain to you what this word actually means. I've written here for you. But the word hung there is an odd word to use when speaking of of someone talking, because usually we think if someone speaks and they speak too much, you know, Paul, they always say, man, they, they hung themselves. You know, they, they said something and they're going to get crucified by it. They're, they're going to get strapped up by their own words. But in this case, the word means to be very attentive, to be captivated by someone. And in fact, you know, this word is only used uh, this time in the New Testament. It's the only usage of this word. It's used four other times in the Old Testament. Uh, three of those times, of course, this would be the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This would not be a Hebrew translation. But in the Septuagint, this word is used four times. And three of those times are in Nehemiah. And each time it talks about how Nehemiah wanted God to be attentive to his prayer. Now watch this, guys. Watch this uh, connection here. Just looking at the usage of the word only uh, here in the Old Testament New Testament, this word would indicate that we should be as attentive. Watch this now. To God's Word as we want Him to be to our prayer. Okay, application time. Watch this. Don't get up and walk out. What if God treated you in your prayer life the way you treat His Bible? That's some application right there, isn't it? They thought, man, I love you too, but please back off a little bit. I mean, everyone here would admit, God, man, give me your singular ear. Listen to the cry of my heart. And when we pray, man, we want God to stop the world, don't we? And pay attention to my prayers. And we didn't say it that way, but that's what we're expecting. And He does. He can. He's almighty. And, but did you know that this word actually means you should give God the same kind of attention and captivity and, and riveted um, um, attention that that you want Him to give you. You ought to hang on every word He says. And that, that puts devotions in a new light. Amen. I mean, I'm okay with the daily bread, but I'm kind of looking for a daily buffet. Amen. And I'm kind of looking for like eight or nine meals a day when it comes to God. And, and you know, I think sometimes we get in this attitude that, well, just give me a chapter a day and I'll keep the devil away. And You know, a verse here and a verse there. And we give God morsels, nothing to indicate that we are riveted, that we're captivated, watch me, that we hang on every word He says, that we really want to know Him. But man, let a need come up, and we're knocking down the door at God's throne, aren't we? I need your attention! Some advice for you from your pastor. Make it a two-way street. Hang on every word He says, just as He is riveted and attentive to your every single need. And the church says what? Amen. Now, now I want to share with you something. This is not new to Jesus Christ. This result, this type of atmosphere is nothing new to Him. In fact, I'm going to give you three references. I want you to write these down because you'll be amazed. This was a common um, occurrence for Jesus. In fact, did you know that before his ministry ever started, when Jesus Christ was 12 years old, this is amazing, I saw this this week, Luke chapter 2, verse 47, I'll throw these on the next screen behind me, Luke 2, 47, here's what the verse says, he was 12 years old, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. You catch that? When he was 12, all the folks listening were what? They were amazed, they were captivated. 
They were like, dude, who is this 12-year-old teaching all of us? In Luke chapter 4, verse 36, this happened before he selected his disciples. He was just on the verge of his three-year ministry. He had not chosen the twelve, but look at this, what the Bible says, Luke 4, 36. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. And then if you go to Luke 20, 19, which is the very end of his ministry, it's actually the last week of his life. Watch this. And we'll get to this later in the next couple of weeks. The Bible says this. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. I mean, anytime he spoke, there was this sense of amazement, conviction. Um, they were captivated. People were riveted from the time he was 12 to the time he was 33. Wherever he went and wherever he spoke, man, people what? They hung on his words. It's pretty awesome. Jesus was an incredible communicator. He had incredible authority. He had just a very visible power from when he was 12 to 33. I pray that won't stop just because we're in the 21st century. And I want us to stay riveted on God's words. You know, I think it's interesting that in this last part of Luke 20, don't turn there or anything, but in, as they wanted to kill him, it says they couldn't move against him. They couldn't kill him because they were afraid of the people. Why were they afraid of the people? It's because they listened to him. It goes back to this idea of hanging on his words. They wouldn't dare, even though it was contrived, they wouldn't dare try to build a consensus against Jesus among people that were really for him. I mean, and they wouldn't try to kill him without the people being with him. So they were in this quandary. If we don't have the people with us and we go in and kill him, we're going to have a mob on our hands. But if we try to get the people with us, we've got to try to catch him in something he says. What do we do? And so that sets the groundwork for what they did in, in chapters 19 and 20. They were questioning him. They were trying to trap him. They were trying to get him to say anything that would incriminate himself because they were out to get him. And why did they not like him? Well, they didn't like him for the one reason that the people loved him. He spoke the truth. See, it all comes back to this phrase, they hung on his words. You see, the, the people, the commoners, watch this, guys. They hung on his words, but the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the chief priests, they hated his words. Those folks in Luke 20, the people here in Luke 19, those folks in the temple who were, who were dwelling there as robbers, they saw Jesus Christ as a threat. But the commoners, the folks who followed Him for three years, saw Him as the truth. The religious crowd looked at Him and said, Hey, you're not following our wisdom. But the regular folks said, Man, we have God's words. And you see the contrast? And this, this, this entire, these entire chapters deal with, with really one word, and that is, the word authority. You see, that's what makes someone hang on the words of Jesus. When you realize this man, he's the authority of my life. What he speaks is truth. I'm not threatened by them. He doesn't give me necessarily man's wisdom. He gives me God's words. Now, they are the true wisdom, granted. But in the, in the view of someone from the crowd, it's not necessarily man's wisdom he's given me. It's, it's God's word. Just think he's not afraid. It's the truth. And that's really where we are. And, and this idea of authority, letting God speak and us hanging on His every word because He is the authority, man, 
That's what's going on in this text. In fact, the idea of authority is very blatant. Look with me at Luke 19.45. It's the idea of authority here that he talks about when he cleared the temple. The Bible says in Luke 19.45 that he entered the temple area. Are you with me there? And he began driving out those who were selling. For he said it is written, he said to them, My house. Did you catch that? Underline the phrase, my house. Whose house? His house. Now, to the average Jew and the average person there who was invading the temple and setting up shop, and by the way, they weren't selling stuff in the sense like you would think selling CDs or something here. They were charging exorbitant rates for the exchange of money so that this, say, Dennis could go and buy a, a dove or a lamb for a sacrifice. You know, Dennis would come to me and say, Todd, I'm from out of town. I need to make a sacrifice in my annual pilgrimage. I need to exchange my money. So I would say, well, I'll tell you what. I'll give you some Jerusalem money. But it's going to cost you like $100. That's what he was driving out of the temple. Some folks take this passage to say you can't sell anything in church on Sunday, but that's just nowhere in the text. What's in the text is the exorbitant deceit, the, the usury, so to speak, the blatant uh, misuse and misrepresentation of, of what was going on. So he drove them out. And he said, my house, to the average Jew, whose house was the temple? Now think this through. It was not Jesus, but whose? God's. So what did he say in this simple two-word answer they started with? When he said, my house, he was saying, by the way, I am God. See, suddenly his authority seems a little different. So when they heard, they're like, wait a second, you can't say you're God. This can't be your house. This is Jehovah's house. And he's saying, now you're catching on, people. My house. And he made himself eager with God because he was God. And in that whole encounter of the temple, he was clarifying his authority. And that's why the people hung on his words. He was speaking from God the Father. Amen? When he speaks today, when you read, when the Holy Spirit communicates, guess what? It's God the Father. He's, he's talking to you. In chapter 20, you see three questions. And I'm not going into great detail here, but you see three questions. Uh, verse 2, they begin to trap him and ask him, Who gave you this authority? You see that question? Then you look down about verse 22 of Luke 20. And they asked him, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they're questioning there again his authority. Look at Luke 20, verse 33. They want to know about the marriage issue there after the resurrection. All of these questions were, were ways they were trying to trap him. And here's why, people. Listen. Now, follow me. Don't disengage. If in some way they could show that he was wrong about an answer, if in some way they could trip him up verbally, if his words could ever hang him in the wrong sense, then guess what he wouldn't have? He wouldn't have authority. He couldn't call the shots. He couldn't pass out the orders. And I use those words not that he was a order giver, shot caller type of person. He was a humble servant. But you see what I'm saying. And so they tried over and over to say, we've got to catch him in his words. We've got to try to stop him. We've got to try to get him to... To incriminate himself, but they never could. And in fact, the last part of chapter 20, um, verse 39. I love this, this verse, Luke 20, 39. Look at this. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. you know why they shut up? Because they realized, man, this guy is the authority on questions. 
When He speaks, we ought to listen. They hung on every word He said. They were attentive, riveted, captivated. Now, I'm just simply going to make a simple application here. That is the question that you and I have to answer in regards to Luke 19 and 20, and especially this verse 48 of Luke 19 where the people hung on his words because they knew he was the authority. He was from God. He spoke truth. He wasn't a threat. Well, that's the question we've got to answer. Who is the authority in your life? I'm going to ask it again. Who is the authority in your life? When Michael asked us to, to give, he talked about tithes and offerings. Did you say, I'm not giving 10%? Who's the authority in your life? I'm not going to offer to God things that I have, really. Why do you... Come under the authority of the Bible when it talks about just giving. Not just of our money, but as we've been discussing for a number of weeks now, of ourselves, of our energy, of our talents. And just to be quite bold here, I'm getting a little nervous, but you know, how can anyone say, hey, yeah man, God's my authority when we blatantly disobey? I'm a little confused there. Is that okay? I'm sure nobody here would do that, of course. I mean, not in this church. But, you know, other people, right? And I'm amazed at the number of people, and this is even me sometimes, when I get very convicted when I'll, when I'll mouth something off or I'll say something, and then my life will be the opposite. I'm like, man, that's, and something's wrong with that picture. So as I ask you this question, who is the authority in your life? What I'm asking is this, are you hanging on every word that Jesus spoke, willing to obey anything He says? Anything. Is He the authority of your life? When it comes to your, your, uh, your purity. Todd, man, I've never had an affair with my wife. What do you do down on the internet? When she's in bed and you're all alone and you click around. Are you engaging in mental affairs? You know, Christ said that if you lust in your heart, it's as if you've already committed adultery. So who really is the authority of your life? Does it affect your mouse? Does it affect your checkbook? Does it affect your habits and your words? Yes, Todd, God's the authority of my life. When I get home from work, man, I'm a bear to live with. You know, we treat all of our co-workers really great. And we get in our car and go home and walk in the door... And they greet us, oh, I've had a rough day, leave me alone. Whoa, you know, what happened here? It could be wife to husband, husband to wife. And suddenly we treat the folks under our roof, which is really the haven of everyone's life, should be. It ought to be the home, ought to be the one place where you can go, and you know what, I'm loved unconditionally. And yet sometimes we treat them as if that's the, that they're the enemy. I've done that before. My wife will come over to me when this is going on, and she'll say, hey, um, Hey, a uh, furry growly man. You know? And I, will, I don't want to look at him like I'm just not in a good mood. I've had a, you know, whatever. And so, hey, uh, you know, we're, we're with you. 
Like we're not your enemy. And we'll just kind of say that out loud. And boy, that'll just make me cry sometimes. And I'll just realize, man, that's just why did I speak that way? And I'll turn and we'll hug and embrace and have forgiveness. But it'd be wrong for me to keep that attitude and yet stand up on Sunday and say, obey the Bible, and yet bark at my family. See, there's a problem with authority when I say one thing and do another. So I want to actually ask you again, who is the authority in your life? As we talk about issues such as giving, personal purity, let's talk about a commitment to church. I mean, we're already kind of walking on eggshells, dancing on ice. We might, I mean, we're walking on ice, might as well dance. That's what I've heard, right? I mean, I've heard folks say, yeah, Todd, I want to be a member of the church. And a member to me kind of like means commitment. I would think member would mean you're going to be committed. And yet sometimes church is always the afterthought. Now, that's not necessarily true here. I realize that. And I mean that seriously. I mean, you didn't know this. We've been having Saturday night services now for about seven weeks. Did you know that? Every Saturday night, about nine, ten or eleven, we come here and we set up. And man, I'm telling you, you guys are awesome. I mean, I know we got put off last night an extra hour without knowing about it. They told us nine. We got here. They said, you can't come in until ten. And Nate, the great deacon that he is, just said, Todd, we'll be fine. I'll, I'll apologize to the people. And we're doing the best we can. We didn't know it was going to be ten. They had a big thing here. And, and yet, you know what? I, I watch you guys and I, I see how you put church first. But I want to tell you something. That's not the normal way. You know, a lot of families, and they're just sleeping in. And I'm probably getting real personal here, but I'm just going to be honest with you. You know, they'll sleep in whatever church they belong to. They may give a dollar here, a dollar there. They never think about doing more than just showing up. You guys have gone way overboard. I'm going to tell you something. That's the reason First Assembly has grown like it has. A church cannot grow unless its members are committed. Until we say, you know what? I just can't go out of town every other week. I've got a church I committed to. And I realize I'm probably getting a little personal. You know, I like my vacation. You like yours. I'm all for that. But you know, if, if six months out of the year, the most of it is gone, it'd be hard to build a church on that. Wouldn't it? Hard to be teaching them the Bible. It'd be hard to get any kind of momentum. And I want to thank you that you have lived out an attitude that says, you know what? I'm not just going to say I'm going to go to church and be committed. I'm there. Thank you. But it all comes back to this again. Who's the authority in your life? Do we say one thing but live another? When Jesus Christ this word is the authority, and we hang on it, then whatever he says, we do. Whatever. Whatever he says, we do. Now, as I've said that, you have probably thought of something God's asking you to do. Because that's how the Spirit works, you know. And by the way, the Spirit is working. When you asked God a minute ago, Lord, I want to know you. So as the Spirit takes the Word now and takes what was written by the, the apostles and He's starting to open your heart to see, man, do I hang on every one of God's words? Am I riveted and captivated? I suspect the Spirit of God has brought something to the surface and says, yes, I think you really want to be, but here's an area that perhaps you say you hang on my words, but you really don't live it out. Now, don't, don't say that out loud right now. You can elbow your husband or elbow your wife if you want. But just let that kind of sit in your mind. Because that's the area that God wants to move you forward in. That's the area He wants to ask you to bring under His authority. I was thinking this week about issues in my life where I will say, the Bible is my sole authority. And God's Word will flash a 
a light in the corner of the basement of my life and say, really? You know, so what about that area? I'm like, yes, Jesus, I love you too. You're the authority of my life. And God begins to work with me. You know, I thought about this song, the B-I-D-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. <clears throat> Most of the time. I throw that phrase in, don't you sometimes? Yes, that's the book for me. Most of the time. I stand alone. Most of the time. On the Word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. And I found myself this week saying, God, I don't want to be a most of the time kind of person. Whatever issue is not under your authority, I want to stand alone on the Word of God. People laugh at me. They laugh at me. They make fun of you. So what? Man, you and God make a majority. So you're already, you've already won. We were having conferences this past week with our two littlest ones. We love East Elementary. So this is not a knock at any of our schools. I want to say this just as a point of information. But I looked at the conference thing and the schedule for what's coming up, and there was a phrase on there called the, the uh, age, I see, the earth age or something. It's one of their study points. I said, hey, I noticed you're going to talk about the earth and the age of the earth. I said, i got a question for you. And the teacher goes, what's that? And I said, uh, will you all talk about evolution? And immediately it got tense. Now, why? That's just an honest question. But I could sense my wife squeezing my leg. I could see the teacher licking her lips, you know. But hey, it's my kid, my tax dollars. I'm just curious, you know, what does this mean? And she goes, oh, we're not going to teach that. And then she said, personally, I'm a creationist, like extra brownie points or something. I don't know you know what that means. But I said, well, great. I said, I am too. And I said, I'm just curious, you know, that if you happen to teach evolution, and she may have to as the teacher. I said, I just want to make sure it's a theory. And that maybe you also bring in creation. I said, you know, the earth's only about 7,000 years old at the most. Maybe 10. But most theologians and scientists believe six to 7,000 years old is a good age of the earth. And she goes, Really? I said, I know the fossils and all those things as millions, but the truth is, I said, there's great scientific evidence for a young earth. And she said, oh. I said, I'd be happy to come in while you talk about this. And she said, well, you know, I'll need to check with the principal. We talked about that. But, you know, as I left there, I was like, she feels what I feel. But why are we afraid to stand alone on the Word of God? In six days, God made heaven and earth. Period. I believe in creation. I was getting, I got some voter guides in the mails this week. And man, how many of your mailboxes are like jammed full? You need to go vote, by the way. I got eight messages on my phone last night. I was speaking on the Southern Iowa Friday and Saturday. And I got back last night and I saw eight messages. Man, people love me. I can't wait. You know, and I'm asked play. And guess what? This is President Bush. You got him too, didn't you? I was thinking about all these issues. Abortion came to my mind. You know, and and that's something that I, that's wrong. It's, I, I, it's just wrong. But I was reading in Luke this week, again, just surfacing, skimming some things. And did you know that when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, the Bible calls it a child. So I'm just going to be real frank with you here. I can't tell you to vote for, but I'm not backing down to made-up rules about church. I wouldn't vote for anybody that was for abortion. I just wouldn't vote for him. It's hard to comprehend how someone could say, yes, I believe in the Bible, and turn around and make abortion and accommodate that murderous habit our nation is involved with. You see, guys, that's what I'm talking about. 
Is this book really the authority of our life? Is it? Um, the missionary um, David Livingstone trekked across Africa in his efforts to reach people. He carried a team of people with him. And he had 73 books that he used in his study and that he used to preach from and that he journaled in. But as these folks trekked across Africa, they uh, just began to be very fatigued with the weight, 180 pounds of bags that they were carrying. And so they said to Dr. Livingstone, listen, we just can't continue this trek with all this weight. And they began to give out books one by one and, and lead them in certain places and, and lighten the load. And it came down to the last bag and he said to his crew, he said, listen, you can give away any book you want, but don't give away my Bible. Ended up that, that missionary team definitely lightened the load, but they always had at least one book with them. It reminds me of what John Wesley said when he stopped at a, an old country church. He's a circuit riding preacher years ago. They came out to greet him. And one of the members said, Dr. Wesley, where's your stuff? And he looked at the man and he said, Sir, I am a man of one book. Isn't that awesome? Hey, folks, you know what? I'll tell you something. I, I want to be a man of one book. I want our church to be a church of one book. And I know it's culturally neat right now to not offend people with the Word of God and not to ask them to bring their Bibles. I go to churches where, you know, you never see a Bible. And I'm not here to say that's right or wrong. But I have just one question. Why are we ashamed to hold this book up as the source of our authority? And the foundation of our teaching. If we're not teaching this book or singing about this book or teaching your kids about it, man, stay home. Go to the Y. Join up with the Rotary. I mean, do whatever you want. This really is, is the only thing that separates us. So at First Family, you're probably going to be asked to bring a Bible. To mark in it. To look in it. You're going to be asked to get into a small group where you can study it more. We are going to make sure we do all we can to make you a person of one book. So that when the questions come and the issues are raised, you can say, I'm hanging on the words of Jesus. What does He say? Amen? I thought all week, what does it look like to hang on God's Word? So I want to give you something. I want to give you a piece of twine. And they're going to pass this out. And I want you to take this twine, if you would, just hold it in your hand for a minute. And while you're getting your twine, I want to ask you to turn to Titus chapter 1. I'm going to show you this simple verse and we'll be done. This is probably the best picture of what it looks like to hang on God's Word, okay? Your Bibles are turned to Titus 1.9. You have the twine in your hand. I want to ask you to make a knot in your twine, would you? Most of you know how to do that. If you have some Boy Scout history, you'll be just fine. If you don't, just watch someone. Just make a little loop, put the, the string through there, and make a knot. Just like that right there. Okay? And if you want to make it a little bigger, feel free to. Here's what Paul told Titus in Titus 1.9. This is a great picture. I think one of the best biblical pictures of what it means to hang on God's Word. Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Are you there? The Bible says this. He's speaking here of 
of elders. He talks about how he must be self-controlled and the husband of one wife. And he goes through this list of things. Look what he says in verse 9. This man must hold firmly. Take your twine, put your fingers right on the knot, and hold it firmly. The Bible says that elders must hold firmly to the trustworthy message. You know what that says? That's the same as Luke 19. They hung on the words of Jesus. You know the words uh, hold firmly? I like the way the King James translates this. It says that he must cling to the faithful word. In other words, and this is kind of a loose analogy, so if you find holes in this, just don't speak up right now. It's, it, the point is the illustration. But you know, I look at this knot kind of like God's word. Maybe life is like the twine. And sometimes you just feel like you're sliding down the twine, don't you? And what do I grab onto? Where's something secure? Well, you know what? The knot. That's what I cling on to. That's what you hang on. That's what you hold firmly to. I, I like to think that in the twine of my life, I'm tying knots wherever I can. Principles from the Bible that I can cling on to when I feel like I'm sliding down the twine of life. And by the way, it'd be good to tie a lot of knots. See, some of us have a few knots. Not here, but in the, in the twine, right? And we slide for long periods. You know why? Because you have, and, and pardon this language here, but you have failed to dig into the Word and, and withdraw out principles by which you can hang your life on. I'll tell you something. You can't hang your life on feelings. You have a twine up here and you have a knot here and a knot out there. And that's about all. You're like, man, I, I, I just feel like my life's you know, dwindling away. It's falling to pieces. I'm sliding down into who knows what. And some folks say, well, you know, you just need to kind of just not let yourself have those feelings. You need to think about yourself not sliding, but perhaps floating. You know, feelings will never get you out of a rough time. i tell you what does. When you're sliding down the twine of your life, so to speak, and you hang on to a knot, man, it's the foundation of God's unchanging Word that will override your feelings and get you through a tough time. And if you don't have a lot of knots in your life, so to speak, I'd encourage you to open your Bible, start reading, and develop knots, principles that you can grab onto and hang on for dear life. And what do you think you tell her? A dad or a mom who loses a who loses the uh, the spouse. What do you say to, to a husband or wife? Young. My sister was 26, 27 when she lost her husband to cancer. What do you say to your sister when she's a widow at 27? There's nothing about that that feels good. But you tie a knot from the Bible in First Thessalonians. It says, you know what, Kim. God has promised you. You will see Dean again. So her heart cries and her family weeps, but she holds on to the knot. God's promise. She hangs on His words. Are you with me, guys? Tie some knots in the twine of your life. I'm going to ask you this week to keep this in your Bible. Maybe this will be your new Bible marker. You might want to, if you want more twine, we've got plenty. You can go buy your own. But when you discover a new principle, 
Maybe you take a piece of twine, tie a knot, and put it in your Bible. Maybe in about ten years you have like all this twine packed in your Bible. One day, maybe when you're old and gray, and maybe when you pass on to the real life in heaven. Amen. That's what I said. The real life in heaven. Maybe your kids will find your Bible and it'll just be packed full with these little knotted twines. Maybe little girls say, Mom, or, or, you know, what was Grandpa's Bible filled with all this twine? Oh, those were all the knots that he held on to when life just seemed to be impossible to deal with. Those are principles, truths that he believed in. Are you with me, guys? That's the way we've got to hang on God's Word. That's the way we've got to treat it. Just like Paul told Titus, Here's the trustworthy message. Hang on. You kind of picture this guy. I picture this guy hanging by a cliff. The rope's over the cliff and everything below is dangerous. And he's got one hand on the knot. And the wind's blowing. He's being swung around and he's hitting the cliff and he's about to fall. But you know what? He's hanging on the knot. See how the picture I see. Maybe you've got the picture of a guy in the water. He's got one arm over the life raft and the waves are hitting him and it looks impossible, but he's hanging on. I'm not sure you picture it, but don't miss the point of this text in Luke and Titus. God's Word must be to you the knot that you hang on to. That and only that will get you through. How do you do that? You dig into the Bible. You listen to people who teach the Bible. You write about your Bible. You do a lot of the things that you already know to do. You see, I'm not telling you things you don't know. I'm just encouraging you to do what you do know. Instead of listening to Rush Limbaugh, maybe listen to some people on CD or, or check out some stations that have teaching going on to learn more. Listen through the Internet. Uh, one of our recent attenders here came to me at school and she says, Well, Todd, I've just started coming to First Family and I'm... I worked my way back through Luke on the Internet. I listened to it from chapters 1 through 4 on the Internet. And I said, that's a lot I'm preaching. She goes, yeah, I've got it on all the time. And she's talking about how she's catching up with our series by listening to the Internet. Isn't that neat? Instead of thinking, well, I'll just you know, catch it whenever. There's this intentionality. And that's what you've got to have. If you're not in a small group, I would encourage you. There's a lot more depth in those. They take the Bible and they walk you through passages that we're teaching. There's just a lot of neat things. And you need to try to do whatever you can do to tie the knots. That's what you're hanging on to. Now, if you go to our website this week, I want to just show you, because I've got way more to say than I could ever say. I spent most of the week just writing out like three hours of, of messages, and then God said, you'll never get this in. I'm like, you're right. So I just want to share with you real quickly. If you go to our website, um, I, there's a transcript of today's message written out. And there'll be a CD up there. I mean, there'll be an audio copy on Monday afternoon, but... If you'll just check these five things out, there's a T on the website under 50 days. Click on the T and they'll come up a transcript of the message. And we've written, I've written a lot of information about these things and how the Word of God affects our whole body. When we hang on the words of Jesus, so much of our body, of our life is really affected. In fact, I wrote out these five things. How my mind, my mouth, my heart, my arms, my feet, all are affected positively when I simply hang on the Word of God. I don't have near the time to go over it, so I'm not even going to try just go to the website, click on the T under 50 days, download the transcript and read it and let God begin to work in your heart even more. There's scriptures in there, there's illustrations, there's ways you can learn. And you know what? This is a real passion point for me. We must become a church. We must keep becoming a church of one book. We must becoming people of one book. Dig into the Bible, amen? 
Hang on the words of Jesus. Tie a knot and hang on. Just before World War II, Michael Billister went to a small village in Poland to deliver Bibles. You never heard of Michael Billister. I never had either, but he was a Bible distributor. He passed out about two Bibles to this village is all he had. Well, this, these Bibles got passed around and in the course of the next couple of years, 200 folks in that village had come to Christ. Michael Billister writes in his, uh, in his journals that in a couple of years he went back to visit this, this village. And they gathered the worship people together and it was a service they wanted Michael to speak. Because he had brought the Bible to them. He had brought the Word of God. And so he said, well, let's recite, let's recite some verses from the Bible that, that I gave you. And they looked at him kind of funny. Verses? He said, yes, don't want you to, won't you recite some verses to me? And they said, oh, but Brother Michael, we don't know any verses. He said, you don't? And they said, do you mean chapters? And so he looked back at them like, what do you mean? And Michael Billister writes that at that moment, three folks stood up and said, well, we've learned the entire book of Luke. Will that be okay? An older lady stood up and said, Brother Michael, I have all the Psalms memorized. Can I say one of those? And he said he began to weep as he saw people with only one or two copies of the Word of God for a period of two years display what it means to hang on every word. You've got more copies in your house than that whole village had. And if my guess is right, and I shouldn't appeal to guilt, so I'm not going to, but I will appeal to conviction. If my guess is right, you struggle to memorize one verse. I would suggest that maybe we're not hanging on the words of Jesus like we say. Is that okay to say? Let's give God our riveted attention. Let Him be the authority of our life. Amen? Let's pray.